G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. And a conversation ahead over the next hour I know that you will want to engage with today. One about the fountain of public prosperity that has made Australia what it is today. Well, it's been decades on the drawing board for two of Australia's most significant historians and it won't be without controversy. And that's because the fountain of public prosperity is linked to the official religion that was brought to Australia with the First Fleet. Now, it was the religion that shaped public policy, linking the Australian colony with the same forces that shaped even places in the UK where the Great Awakening was unfolding and the great historical identities like William Wilberforce. It was, of course, evangelical Christianity and up until now it has been something of an untold story. But Professor Stuart Piggin has co-written his new account with Robert Linder who was the founder of the Evangelical History Association of Australia. Now, Professor Stuart Piggin, co-joint associate professor, a former director of the Centre for the History of Christian Thought and Experience at Macquarie University and head of the Department of Christian Thought of the Australian College of Theology. He's written seven books and hundreds of articles, making a major contribution to Australia's religious history, and he is joining us on the line. A special welcome to you, Stuart Piggin. Uh, good morning, Neil, and good morning to your listeners, and thank you for your very generous introduction. Stuart, let me ask you, first of all, is it fair to say, when I say decades, is it fair to say that this book is something of a labour of 30 years in the making? Yes, it's our life work. Um, 32 years ago, I was asked by a Scottish historian, Ian Murray, to write a history of uh, Christianity in Australia. And uh, I was then studying the founders of evangelicalism, who were going back to the revivals. And uh, uh, so I transferred this to a study of this movement in Australia. And that's how it began 30 years ago. We received a large research grant to get going with it. And we've done all sorts of things along the way, like founding the Evangelical History Association and uh, and uh, other research bodies associated with it. So that we've produced lots of books and articles along the way. But this is this is the final flowering of the of the whole area of research. Now you are working with your co-author Robert Lindner. Now, did he uh, originate in the United States uh, and uh, and came to Australia uh, back uh, some decades ago? Uh, actually, he is still in the States. He's an American. He's a distinguished professor of history at Kansas State University uh, in Manhattan, Kansas. And he, he came out every year for those 30 years uh, to do research on Australian history. He's made a magnificent and enormous contribution to, uh, to the study of religion in Australia. He was decisive in this project because when we started it, I thought that we were writing about the internal history of a movement and it did not have much connection with Australian history. I did not know much about its impact. 
and I didn't I didn't expect it to be as influential as it was because like most people trained in history in Australia I've been brought up to think that religion is something that Australians aren't particularly interested in and uh, so he said to me well why do you make these assumptions why do you just assume that you don't know that you're just assuming it so why don't you look at the evidence and when we looked at the evidence it completely changed the way we we approached the whole thing there's a very dramatic and decisive moment in the history of the research, really. Uh, well, Stuart, you're an Aussie. Uh, is there yeah. some advantage, then, in the fact that Robert Lindner is an American? Because sometimes looking at, from outside into the fishbowl of what might be Australia and our history, that he was able to bring some objectivity, and as you're describing there and, and talking about the way that our assumptions are built. That's a very perceptive question, Neil. I think that's exactly right. I've... I thought that repeatedly over the years as we've done this project. His insights, which come from, from the fact that he, he comes from a different Christian environment, and the difference is, is something which highlights the reality in Australia. You wouldn't see that reality if it weren't for the differences between the two. One of the major themes of our history, for example, is the, is the impact of evangelical Anglicanism, which, as you know, is very strong in Sydney, in the Diocese of Sydney. But in, in America, the Episcopal Church, the equivalent of the Anglican Church in America, of course, was uh, disadvantaged because it was on the wrong side in the American Revolution. And so the, Episcopal, the Episcopalian Church in America has not been strongly evangelical. In Australia, it has been, and it, it's more of an establishment church, and so that has given a particular tone, I think, to Australian Christianity, which is different from American uh, just, uh, this might be a little aside, but when you talk about mm. the evangelicalism of Anglicanism in Sydney, and uh, people who look at the Anglican Church, they can see differences uh, state to state, and Sydney Anglicans, uh, they do stand out. Is this because they just trace their roots right back to uh, the arrival of the First Fleet and the sort of Christianity that arrived on our shores? Is there sort of a, a jealousy to try and maintain some of those wonderful roots? Mm, another good question, Neil. I, I think that is true. I, I don't think it's the only reason why Sydney Anglicanism is distinctive. I think that it's become increasingly that way over the decades, and there have been significant moments uh, and, and significant archbishops and so on who have who have uh, focused Sydney Anglicans on the evangelical gospel in a way that we haven't had in other parts of Australia. But the but the first. The, the origins of Christianity in Australia with the First Fleet was very important because it was it was a public form of Christianity. It was evangelicalism is of course in, incredibly an intense individual form of personal relationship with Jesus. But by the time uh, the evangelical movement had arrived at the at the First Fleet by 1788, it had already become a public movement. It was already beginning to influence wider society and Wilberforce was then beginning to wonder about what he would do with his life and uh, it was then that he said about beginning the abolition of the slave trade but all that, that motivation to abolish the slave trade was also then put into uh, other areas of um, reform in society the evangelicals were chronic reformers, they wanted to know what they could reform next they wanted to change everything into the likeness of the kingdom of God and so they began with prison reform and then that made them think about transportation. Transportation was more merciful than hanging, which most people, unfortunate enough to be in prisons, copped in those days. 
And so the evangelicals had first favoured transportation and therefore they, they, they supported the move to Australia. But then they said about abolishing transportation after that had been going for, for some time as well because they're the, the chronic reform people. But in my book, I go right back to 1740. I think Australia doesn't begin in 1788. Um, and of course, our Aboriginal brothers and sisters would say it began 60,000 years ago. But at least as far as evangelical history is concerned, it goes right back to the origins of the evangelical movement and the Great Awakening of uh, 1740 and the 1740s. Now, if my history serves correct, if we go back to that... Uh, 1740 time this was right in the middle of what they called the gin age uh, in especially in England uh, where they were going through a dreadful time uh, chaos uh, when it comes to a legal environment and the way that people treated each other and the the surge of uh, alcoholism that was affecting a community And, and of course that was the sort of seedbed for evangelicalism to emerge there uh, under the leadership of John Wesley. So do you do you include John Wesley in the way that you talk about the history that begins to shape Australia? Absolutely. Uh, John Wesley is a, a very important uh, figure in all of this uh, because he, he he not only was about reform, but he was and, and dealing with problems like the alcohol abuse, which as you have identified was a very major problem in England at the time. Uh, he, he was all about social uplift. And indeed, his brother Charles, who, as you know, wrote the 9,000 hymns, mm, yeah. which um, Wesleyans love to sing and most of us in all churches love to sing, he wrote, he wrote a hymn which says, Jesus comes with all his grace, comes to save a fallen race, object of our glorious hope. Jesus comes to lift us up. It's all about uplift, social uplift. And the Methodist movement had a tremendous impact on on elevating people who were at the bottom rungs of society. So Wesley was heard gladly by you know tens of thousands, as you know, sometimes at one time when he preached, and same with, uh, with, with Whitfield. But it's all about uh, social uplift. And so they're the ideal people, really, when you come to think of it, to be involved in the first settlement in Australia, which, was, uh, which could have been pretty inauspicious, given the nature of the people who were brought out at that time. But they were very quickly transformed into a very respectable society, really. And it's largely, I think, because of this optimistic, reformist form of Christianity, which values change and believes that change is possible. Well, I suspect listeners are thinking, wow, because this idea of social uplift and, as you use words like chronic reforming and uh, those sorts of things, they just... Uh, they just uh, resonate so powerfully when we talk about our Christian heritage in Australia. But let me bring you to the now, because there is really very much a move to revise history. And this revisionism, it seems to be rife in when we talk about Australian history. And there's like a movement to diminish the influence of our Christian heritage. Uh, your book's going to go a long way in academic circles to address some of that. But, but what do you think about the way that somehow rather a humanist revisionism has been rife in Australia? I, I, I think actually that um, this, is, this has been a chronic problem in the writing of Australian history. It's not, it's not a new thing this opposition to Christianity or this blindness to the relevance of Christianity in our society. It's been going on for a long time. It's not only an Australian problem, incidentally. Uh, I've actually been involved for the last 15 years in the ancient history department 
at Macquarie University. And it's been very interesting because you can see how these problems go way back. And when the Christians took over the Roman Empire, there were those who thought, you know, this Christian business has made no difference whatsoever. Or, and there were those who said, well, if it didn't make any difference, it worsened it. It, made, it, was, a, it was a problem. It, it, it was a negative impact. And that has been the attitude of many historians through the impact of Christianity throughout the ages. They wanted to say it's either irrelevant and weak, which is what a lot of people say about Australia, about Christianity in Australia. It's, it's weak, it doesn't matter, it's irrelevant. Or if it, if it does matter, if it is relevant, then it's, then it's dangerous and, and destructive and, and a, negative, a negative force. So this is something which I think has been around for a long time. I think actually... Australians have been fairly fair about Christianity until relatively recently, and that's because we value a fair go in Australia, and we've given Christians a fair go, and I think that's that's largely because we have Christian values, and Christian values are concerned with with fairness, Um, and so Christians have benefited from their own values, as it were. But recently, um, this is coming back to your point where you talk about revisionism, you see it as a as a obviously a, a great problem in the present, which of course it is. Uh, then I think recently people have come to the conclusion: not only is Christianity weak and irrelevant, but it's actually harmful. We'd be better we'd be better off without it. It's a very important time in our society to think through that instead of becoming terribly emotional about it. I mean, it's. Emotion is totally justified because of the awful revelations of the sexual abuse um, uh, and child abuse uh, Royal Commission. And uh, people can be justified in thinking, why support these churches? They've done all this harm. So it's, it's very important, I think, for us to think about it. And what I would want to say is that um, the reason why we have this problem, of course, is because uh, Christians were the ones who were responsible for looking after these people. They, many of them were abused, but if they had not been looking after them at all, then these people they probably wouldn't have lived. That's how, that's what happened in the early Roman Empire. Uh, the Christians were the ones who started the orphanages because, in classical thought, you just exposed people to the elements if they were weak in any way, just let them die. So, and if people were without parents, you just let them die. It's the Christians who changed all that. And then the Christians then created this problem for themselves, I guess, by uh, not not, uh, doing what the Lord wanted them to do and and love these children in the way that the Lord wanted them to. Stuart Pegan. What Christianity does, if I could just say this and you'll finish this point, I know I'm labouring it a bit, but I think this is the point, that all the way through history, what Christianity has done, and Christians believe it's through the divine love, they they have generated a quantity and a quality of love and compassion in, and therefore charity and so on, uh, which doesn't happen in, in communities which don't have that Christian presence. So I, I've actually done studies of you know, Australian value studies in the 1980s particularly which showed the difference between what churchgoers contribute to Australian society and what non-churchgoers contribute. And non-churchgoers don't like one saying this because it sounds intolerant, but the the social capital which is generated by churchgoers is far greater than that generated by non-churchgoers. 
So powerful when you say love doesn't happen all by itself. We'll come back and continue our conversation in just a few moments. And I'm going to ask you a very blunt question, Stuart Piggin. I'm going to ask you when we come back in just a few moments, if Australia ever was a Christian country. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Well, I said this would be a great conversation. It is a great conversation, and I want to invite listeners to join in. Our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. You might have a question or a comment that you'd like to put to our special guest, Professor Stuart Piggin. You might also like to leave a question or a comment on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash vision radio. We are talking about Professor Piggin's new book called The Fountain of Public prosperity evangelical christians in australian history 1740 to 1914 uh, stuart i wanted to ask you that question very bluntly and i know that when as christians uh, we sometimes get mixed messages about what is the truth so let me ask you was australia ever a christian country this, I think, is a very fascinating question, Neil, and uh, it it goes to the very heart of our book. We made a discovery um, early in the piece. In fact, it was one of the discoveries I made just before I started to write the book. I asked uh, my history class when I was at the University of Wollongong to write a history of a local church. Uh, it was a course on Australian religious history. And um, we put together a book called Faith of Steel. But when we looked at all the churches and, and, and looked at the date when they were created, we found that, that all the churches in one particular area, one particular community, they were all formed about the same time. And then someone would come along and say, look, our little church, our humble weatherboard house church is not what we want. We want a stone Gothic church. So they would pull their church down. And then all the other people who had churches around them, they did the same thing. And it was quite amazing to see this. It was, it was when you look at it on a graph, it's, it's quite, quite dramatic. And I've, I've found since there's a very good reason for this. And that was that um, in Australian society, uh, going way back, when it, when it was necessary to moralise this convict population, then the way to do it, people thought at the time, the way to do it was to Christianise it. And therefore, Governor Burke came up with his church acts in 1836-37. And what he actually did was he paid for the building of churches in communities where they had a significant number of Anglicans, Church of England, Methodists, Roman Catholics, Presbyterians, and those four churches, Anglican, Methodist, Presbyterian, uh, uh, Roman Catholic, Anglican, Methodist, Presbyterian, they were built in even very small communities. And often if you go to a country town, you see these churches on opposite corners. You often wonder what, what, what that was all about. Well, they were all built as a result of this, I think. But historians, when they look at this, of course, Australian historians who are, they think constantly in terms of secularisation and so on, they think this is the beginning of the end. This means that the Anglican Church is no longer ruling society and therefore this is the beginning of secularisation. But Governor Burke didn't think that way at all. Governor Burke was a very devout man. He had prayer meetings in his in, in the government house. His wife was a 
was the daughter of the evangelical Prime Minister of England, Spencer Percival. He was a very devout character, and he believed that the way to uh, lift, give an uplift to this community was to Christianise it. And therefore, he made all this provision for churches and ministers. What this meant was, if you think through it, what this meant was that Australians, even in small communities, were incredibly well provided with ministry. And as a result of that, you had all these four ministers. This is so different from what happened in England, by the way, where they came from. In England, you have one church in most communities, it's the Church of England. This is a completely different situation. Uh, and it meant that Australians became incredibly Christianized in terms of values because you had all these ministers who were teaching them Christian values all the time. But then historians who are not happy with that, they say, I mean, they've never thought of that part of it, but because they don't emphasize those sort of positives. But what they've also said is, well, look, this is the creation of sectarianism. You have all these churches, they're all arguing with each other. Uh, and because historians love conflict, you see. So they love talking about areas of conflict. And of course, there has been plenty of sectarianism in Australian history, particularly between Protestants and Roman Catholics. Although I think there are, there's something you can say on the other side of that as well. But as far as the other churches were concerned, they had this common sentiment, evangelical sentiment. They were basically evangelical churches. They were not in competition with each other. They were learning from each other. They were not sectarian. They were looking at what each other was doing. They were learning from it. And they were putting it into practice. I call it, in the book, holy emulation. They were emulating each other. Or sanctified competition, because it actually meant that Australians were were blessed as a result of this form of competition, just as they're blessed in the commercial world by a, a competition which brings down prices. So this competition increased the volume of ministry in Australia. And Australia, as a result, I think, became incredibly Christianised. I mean, I'd love to talk to you at great length about what that means, because <laughs> well, Australians... It's very exciting to hear you reflecting on Governor Burke because he would be not very widely discussed and spoken about, but would he be one of those key figures in our history then when you talk about Christian leaders, a key figure who really made a huge difference by creating opportunity there for that, as you call it, a sanctified competition, which sounds to me to be very exciting. Yes, I uh, I think he was a very important person, but... Uh, a lot of governors uh, got on very well with the Christians, and the Christians got on very well with the governors. There, there is a, an understanding that in Australia you have the separation of church and state, and there's a sense in which that's true because uh, it's important, I guess, for the state not to tell people what to believe. You've got freedom of religious belief, and so you don't get that dictating from the from the state, and that's true in Australia. But the real history of the relationship between church and state in Australia is not so much the separation of the two, it's the interdependence of the two. The two seeking to cooperate with each other in order to build a nation. That, I think, is the more exciting part of the story. And I think that Governor Burke was one who... See, not all governors have gone this way. Uh, The second governor in New South Wales, Gross, was a bit of a problem. And, And... Governor Philip is normally said to be an Enlightenment figure rather than a strong Christian. I, I don't think that's necessarily right, but that's what—that's the stereotype. Mm. But most governors and most governments in Australian history, until relatively recently, have been very pro-Christian, and they cooperated in order to build a a happy society. So when you have the Education Acts, for example, of the 
the Secular Education Acts 1880 in New South Wales and dates close to that in other states, colonies in Australia. What they were what they were doing, what the public education system was doing, was actually giving the opportunity for the communication of agreed Christian values, agreed Protestant Christian values. And I think that held sway in Australia until the 1960s. Stuart, we're just uh, two or three minutes out from news and uh, taking calls on 1-800-316-316. Let's take a call from Craig in Ormo in Queensland. Hello, Craig. Welcome along. G'day, guys. Uh, what a fantastic and very interesting, insightful discussion you guys are having. It's uh, been a blessing. My, my question is to the author. Um, I just wonder if there was some significance with the uh, the date that you chose to end it at 1914, which was obviously not long before a, a massive world conflict. Uh, good question. Uh, your thoughts, Stuart? Good, good question, Craig. Uh, actually, it, it, we ended it there because... Um, that, of course, is the, just the beginning of the First World War. And there is a second volume, which we've now left with the publisher, which takes the story from 1914 to 2014. The only, the only reason why we ended it there was because we had so much to say, we just couldn't fit it into one book. And so it's going to be in two volumes. The first volume, however, is, is the one that's coming out this year, and it ends in 1914. But it's as simple as that, Craig. Oh, my only other question, will um, I be able to purchase that through the Vision Store? Uh, well, we'll have to uh, look at that because, in fact, I don't think the book has even been officially launched yet. Is that the case, Stuart? Uh, it, the launch is coming up very shortly? It has been. Uh, it's going to be launched on the 13th uh, next Wednesday, but it's already in the bookshops, actually. It's been released by Monash University Publishing. The publisher is Monash University Publishing, and they've already released the book. You, uh, I saw that it was available in Dimmicks, for example. In, in, in the Abbey Bookshop in Sydney. So it's already available, Craig. You can get it through the bookshops or, or I hope through Vision. Maybe they'll take it on board. <laughs> Look, I'll make a point of uh, talking to our Vision store and making sure that they are aware of the opportunity that is there because no doubt there'll be a real popular uptake of this book. Thank you so much to Craig from Ormo and we're about to go to news in just a short while. If you're only just joining us, we're talking about a new book co-authored by Professor Stuart Piggin. It's called The Fountain of Public Prosperity, Evangelical Christians in Australian History, 1740 to 1914. And interestingly, it's the first volume and there'll be another one that'll come out, no doubt, hot on its heels, but very exciting to be talking about that today. Professor Stuart Piggin is a former director of the Centre for the History of Christian Thought and Experience at Macquarie University and head of the Department of Christian Thought at the Australian College of Theology. We're back with more after Vision National News. But let's talk about some of the practical ways that this Christianity, in fact, affects the growth of a nation. Uh, talking about first peoples and women and workers, uh, the way we see them today. How do you reflect on those groups and, and how significant it was that Christianity was the driving force that, uh, that shaped Australia? Well, uh, Neil, thank you. Um, big question. Uh, maybe we can do them one at a time uh, and perhaps in reverse order. Perhaps we can look at the workers first. Okay. Um, uh, you, you have rightly said that the evangelical movement uh, in the in the 18th century evolved from the Great Awakening into a public movement. It was a very humanitarian movement. It was a movement uh, uh, which sought to reform uh, all the problems in, in society. And so 
come the 1890s in Australia, uh, when there was a period of the great strikes, uh, when labour and capital uh, got into strife, uh, and it was worsened by the fact that you then had chronic drought and uh, there was a collapse in the capitalist system and so on, which showed that capitalism wasn't, uh, uh, wasn't the kingdom of heaven. Uh, there was a lot of room there for conflict, and the conflict was very major. And one of the themes of this book is the way uh, Christians tried to be bridges between different groups. So they tried to bridge the divide between labour and capital. They tried to civilise capital. Uh, and uh, they tried to um, uh, moderate the hard culture, which led to the abuse of women and so on. And they tried to stop uh, aggressive and greedy pastorals and so on from shooting Aborigines and so on. So this was part of the, what they were all about. Um, I think that the, as far as workers are concerned, um, the, the, the interesting thing there is that evangelical Christians are far more involved in the formation of Labour parties in the various colonies than has been recognised by historians hitherto. There is a stereotype that uh, the Labour Party was formed by uh, people who had no faith, atheists, <coughs> or, or Roman Catholics. In actual fact, if you look at the numbers, most of the people who formed the early Labour Parties were Sunday school teachers, Methodist Sunday school teachers, people like that. Uh, there were relatively few Catholics, actually, at that time, so they became very significant uh, a decade later. Um, uh, and there were hardly any atheists at all, and certainly none that got into Parliament at that time. And the, the, the single person who was the great thought leader at the time was W.G. Spence, after whom Spence House is named in, in Melbourne, which is the centre of the AWU. When Bill Shorten opened Spence House, he talked about the great man, but he didn't mention his Christianity, and that his Christianity was foundational and fundamental to what he did. He believed that Jesus was the inspiration of the worker um, and that uh, it would be necessary to uh, to um, take a uh, an approach to conflict which um, is not only I mean, galvanising the, the workers for action and organising them in great unions because he was the great union organiser. He formed the Shearer's Union first of all, then the Miners' Union, and the unions got bigger and bigger under Spencer's excellent leadership. Stuart, uh, let me he, interrupt here for a moment because yeah. when people are hearing about the early trade unions and the formation of Labour parties, uh, as you say, there is a very big difference in what people see today in the Labour Party. And uh, as an historian and familiar with this idea that it was Sunday school teachers and people like that who were interested in workers' rights that uh, were there at the beginning of the Labour movement, uh, I wonder whether uh, you think that, uh, because that's not a very well-known fact, that that might actually be an inspiration for people to say, well, there perhaps needs to be some reform in the Labour movement and getting back to some of those sorts of Christian roots. What are your thoughts on, on just the modern perception of, of the Labour movement? Yes, the Labour movement uh, has its heroes. And uh, one, I mentioned the fact that Keir Hardy, the British Labour Party leader, Keir Hardy, uh, was a, is a great hero of the, of the modern Labour movement. But you see, he's British. They don't have Australian heroes. And they're not, they don't, they don't recognise their Australian saints. 
But they had plenty of them, in, and they just should dig them up. Indeed, Kevin Rudd, at a conference we had in Canberra in 2006, he did speak about this. This was, this was a conference on Australia's Christian heritage, and Kevin Rudd was one who was alert to the, the Christian origins of the Labor movement, and he brought out some of these things. See, we argue that the Christian heritage is not so much that we're in danger of losing it, but that we just, we've never known it. We've, we've never recovered, we've never uncovered it. And uh, when you start to look for these things, you find it all over the place, and especially in the 19th century, the evangelical Christian influence was just everywhere. It was, it was the strongest community-forming force, I would have thought, easily in Australian history in the 19th century. Well, let me and ask you, too, something here uh, that might be a connecting point for the reason why we don't. And interestingly, when you talk about those heroes of faith and even mm. call them saints... Uh, there is something in evangelicalism where we don't actually, uh, you know, uh, we don't actually admire and venerate uh, saints in the way that some other forms of Christianity do. And I wonder whether the evangelicalism of the past just took for granted that there was a servanthood and that there was a humility that meant that those uh, leaders didn't need to be recognized. But uh, you're sort of indicating here that perhaps you need to dig up some of those saints of the past and recognise who the heroes were. Yes, uh, we, 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 we can learn a lot, can't we, from each other, and I think we can learn a lot from the Catholics in this respect. I take it that, that uh, the Catholic understanding of the saints might be different from an evangelical understanding, but they both have this in common, that they would regard as a saint as an example to be followed. And uh, we certainly need to uncover those, those examples, and there are many of them. My book is, our book is just full of them. Uh, one after another, they certainly need to be uncovered again, I think. Now, having just scratched the surface of talking about the workers, uh, let's not avoid uh, or let's not miss the opportunity because time will be short, uh, talking about women and the emergence of women who have rights and have opportunities that perhaps they didn't have in other nations that didn't have a Christian foundation. What are your thoughts and what sort of things did you write about so far as women are concerned in Australia? Uh, I think that some people might think that women are the heroes of this book. Uh, because going right back to the evangelical awakening, because uh, it was Margaret Gambier who was converted by George Whitfield, who uh, was instrumental in the conversion of her husband, Charles Middleton, who was the controller of the Navy, who put together the first fleet. There's a direct line there back to the Great Awakening. And he made sure that the first fleet was a great success so that the convicts, when they got off the ship, were they weighed more than when they got on it because they were, they were, they were so well-provisioned. It was such a humanitarian exercise. I mean, hardly, there was hardly any loss of life in the first fleet. And so there's, um, there is that, that connection going right back, I think, to the, to the, uh, um, to the Great Awakening. I'm sorry, I've lost the thread of the, the question. Oh, we, we were talking about uh, women and the, uh, the way women's rights have been able to emerge. <laughs> yes, yes. So she is, uh, she's a bit of a hero. Uh, but um, uh, I, I argue in the book, we argue in the book, that, that evangelical Christianity was actually the, the first feminist movement. The first feminist movement, according to an American historian who's written on the missionary movement, was that the missionary movement was the first feminist movement because there were so many women involved in the missionary movement from about uh, 1860 on. I mean, there were wives of missionaries before. They weren't counted as missionaries until about then. Then they were uh, allowed to be women missionaries in their own right. And they very quickly outnumbered the males. They became a, a very significant movement. And this became a great opportunity for women 
to uh, develop all sorts of skills and to do things which they would not be able to do uh, back home in a domestic sort of situation. And I think that they they were they became very influential in the community. The largest humanitarian movement in the late 19th century, early 20th century, was the Women's Christian Temperance Union. It had in the world 725,000 members uh, by the 19 by the 1920s. This was the movement which which won uh, the franchise for women, and it did something about. Uh, taking on the liquor lobby and uh, making the liquor industry and uh, tempering their enthusiasm to get us all drunk. Well, uh, there's so much uh, to be excited about in what you're sharing here, Stuart, uh, because when you say that the very first feminist movement was evangelical Christianity, I know that a lot of women listening to our conversation today will be inspired and excited by hearing those sorts of sentiments. And I don't want to cut you off. I tell you, we could do a segment on uh, on just any one of these and enlarge on it more in detail, and perhaps we'll get a chance to do that. But I don't want to miss the opportunity to hear your thoughts too on Australia's First Peoples, on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians, because there's a shaping in there too. You alluded to the idea that uh, that there was uh, that there was a lot of sanctuary given to uh, Aboriginals when you mentioned pastoralists and uh, moving Aboriginal people off of the land and even killing Aboriginal people, and I know that's quite controversial, but your thoughts on uh, on evangelical Christianity when it comes to First Australians? Yes. Now, um, this must be seen in the context of what evangelicals are doing for the abolition of the slave trade. So the same sorts of attitudes that they had for the abolition of the slave trade was then applied to the treatment of Indigenous peoples throughout the world. Christian evangelical Christians established protectorates throughout the British Empire because indigenous peoples were suffering so dreadfully at the hands of invading invading forces. And I think that um, what far too little was done, of course, and not enough was done, and what was done was done too late. But what little was done for Aborigines in Australia in the early 19th century, what stood between them and the rapacious and murderous settlers, as some of them were, uh, were the forces of evangelical Christianity. And they also preserved the languages of Aborigines, which we're now talking about a lot, because we're now seeking to have Aboriginal people educated in their own languages. And it's the missionaries who reduced the languages from uh, an oral to a written form. Um, and they maintained the white conscience over the matter, even though there was not enough being done. They had significant ideas, beliefs, which made all the difference. Theology matters, you see. And they believed that, according to the scriptures, that Aboriginal people were one blood with them. They were, they were their brothers and sisters. That was the motto of the slave trade. Am I not a man and a brother? So that's the Negro uh, of his slave trader. Am I not a man and a brother? Uh, and there was a, a belief also that um, uh, as far as uh, attitudes like um, uh, a belief in uh, um, a failure to civilise people, they believed that civilisation was something which, was, which, which should be understood morally. It's not just a matter of how well-educated somebody is or in what respectable institution somebody is educated, how people behave towards each other. Which is which is a critical to which is critical to their thinking. 
So they thought that barbarism, for example, was not something that any Aborigine ever exercised. Barbarism was what the wife who exploited the Aborigine was, was what they exploited. So they tried to come between the between those who wanted their land uh, and those who wanted to to to, to civilise them, and they they did their best, I think, at, uh, at at a very very difficult situation. Now, what I want to say about this is that I think that reconciliation is still a work for the future. What what evangelical Christians have done is they've kept the whole issue alive, I think. So that I mean, the word reconciliation is a Christian word, Ephesians chapter 2. Atonement, forgiveness, the language which is required to bring to do this um, is something which we have. We have we have an understanding now of what, what we need to do because I think that part of the problem was that the two cultures were just so different they just couldn't begin to understand each other. And they, they took 100 years before they began to understand each other. And it's taken another hundred years to begin to do anything about it. But we've got to keep working on this until we succeed. I noticed, I've just been doing some research recently, and I noticed that when the Archbishop of Canterbury came to uh, to visit Newcastle in 1997, the clergy and the people said to him, God has given us the responsibility for reconciliation with our indigenous brothers and sisters, and we have not done it. We have not exercised it. So it was a confession of fault. So we realise where we've fallen short. That's something that we will we will we will succeed in this because the scriptures tell us we must. We and important things that you're sharing that come from an appreciation and understanding of our history that look to our future. And of course, this issue of reconciliation uh, is going to be one of those areas. And when you reflect on those missionaries. And as you say, preserving language and to uh, provide protection uh, for uh, vulnerable uh, Indigenous Australians, those sorts of things as part of our history, uh, they will go a long way, won't they, into the future as we look ahead uh, in uh, very special issues uh, where reconciliation will be necessary to have a trusted uh, component as part of that reconciliation process. What I can hear you say, Stuart, is that the church has got a big role to play in reconciliation. It won't just be something that will be legislated from the top. That's, that's what I hope to see. I think I hope to keep Christians engaged in the conversation because, as I've said, they have the ideas, they have the, the, uh, the vocabulary which is necessary for this task and they have the moral compulsion not to give up on this but to keep going on until we make a success of this. This is, a, this is the greatest problem. Mm-hmm. This is the greatest distinctive problem facing Australian history. We really cannot fail in this area and we cannot postpone dealing with it for too much longer. We've really got to deal with it. And Stuart, uh, this is only a few minutes remaining in our conversation and if we were drawing some loose ends together... Uh, Let me just propose to you that given that uh, it was 1788 the first fleet arrived and of course as you say a hundred years in Indigenous Australia getting to know uh, uh, non-Indigenous Australians uh, we are still a young nation by the way we might measure ourselves against others and to say that somehow or other the church doesn't have any more influence or that there are those who are trying to minimise the influence and the voice of the church at this time what are your thoughts and perhaps even encouragement to say that uh, we're still in this process uh, don't drop the ball right now yes um, if you put 
Christianity into its world context. Uh, of course, Christianity is expanding now across the world more rapidly than it ever has done in its history. There are more people becoming Christians every day throughout the world than there's ever been in the history of the world. We have a, a narrow problem in Western society where we uh, have become allergic to uh, Christian values, uh, largely because we don't understand them, I think, and we've forgotten our Christian heritage, and we've underplayed the importance, the decisive significance of what Christian Christianity has brought to our nation, including the panoply of freedoms, as we call them in our book, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom of association, all the freedom of conscience, liberty, and so on. These are very important uh, values, which 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 are cherished by and maintained by Christians. You don't tend to find them in countries where Christianity has not been a prevailing force. So I think to leave Christians out of the conversation is uh, something that you would pay a high price for, a very high price indeed, particularly in terms of uh, not generating the sort of compassion that you need in society to make society and communities work together. I've noticed throughout history that that many uh, Christians have withdrawn from engagement because non-Christians say to them, keep off the turf, it's none of your business. I think it's very regrettable. I think that the Christians should be engaged. I mean, Christianity is all about individual faith and so on, but it has a public face. It has a, it has a social significance. And what the Christian churches have all been about is establishing a virtuous and altruistic ecosystem, which if we withdraw the Christian influence from that, then that, that ecosystem will break down, just like other ecosystems break down in the environmental world. Stuart Pigan, just a privilege to hear you reflecting on these things and an encouragement to listeners that we'll have a podcast of this conversation on our 2020 page later on this afternoon. The encouragement too is to get a hold of this new book. As you can hear, the sorts of sentiments that we're talking about today, you'll want to explore those more. The book we're talking about is called The Fountain of Public Prosperity, Evangelical Christians in Australian History, 1740 to 1914. The book is written by Professor Stuart Piggin, and his co-author is U.S. historian Robert Linder. And you'll be able to get it at all good bookstores, and I encourage you to get a hold of a copy. Uh, how do you describe the book? Uh, easy to read, Stuart, or is this something that uh, you know you might need to spend a little time with? Uh, uh, ordinary readers are going to be quite happy to read your book. I, I hope so. Uh, it's not. Uh, it's not full of jargon. Uh, it's not full of statistics. Uh, it's not full. Of, well, it's got a lot of dates in it. I must admit. <laughs> of course. But, uh, I, I think. Uh, I think it's reasonably uh, user friendly. I, uh, it's, it's leisurely. It takes its time to and, 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 and deals with themes rather exhaustively, and some people might find that a challenge. But uh, if you give yourself some time to deal with this book, then uh, I think it will pay dividends. It is 674 pages on just this first volume, so it's a big book. So it's a weekend read. It's a weekend read. Take two days instead of one. (laughs) Well, Professor Stuart Piggin, just a pleasure getting your insights. I want to thank you so much for making yourself available and uh, love to have you on another day. And 
perhaps even unpack some of these areas that we've been glossing over today and just scratching the surface, perhaps even in a little more detail. So I want to thank you so much for making yourself available and uh, all the best with the book and with the uh, formal launch that's coming and uh, all of the good things that will accompany uh, the sorts of thinking shaping that will happen as people really grapple with the issues in your book. Thank you so much for taking some time to be with us today on 2020. Thank you, Neil. It's been a great privilege. Thank you. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.